following sermon is from the Westminster Pulpit, extending the worship ministry of Westminster Presbyterian Church, Lancaster, Pennsylvania. We are a local congregation of the Presbyterian Church in America. Please contact us for permission before reproducing this message in any format. reading this morning from John chapter 11, very important chapter laid out very methodically and carefully as this important miracle of the raising of Lazarus comes, a very obvious precedent to Jesus' own death and resurrection soon to begin to be told about in John. And so it seems as if the Holy Spirit instructed John to take care with how this is told and tell the fine details. And so we're taking that kind of care and looking at it in several parts. Jesus has already been interviewed by Martha as he's come to their home and uh, come there after Lazarus, her brother, has died. We pick up at verse 28 of John 11. Follow in God's Word. When Martha had said this, She went and called her sister, Mary, saying in private, The teacher is here and is calling for you. When she heard it, she rose quickly and went to him. Now Jesus had not yet come into the village, but was still in the place where Martha met him. When the Jews who were with her in the house, consoling her, saw Mary rise quickly and go out, they followed her, supposing that she was going to the tomb to weep there. Now, when Mary came to where Jesus was and saw him, she fell at his feet, saying to him, Lord, if you had been here, my brother would not have died. When Jesus saw her weeping and the Jews who had come with her also weeping, he was deeply moved in his spirit and greatly troubled. And he said, where have you laid him? They said to him, Lord, come and see. Jesus wept. So the Jews said, See how he loved him. But some of them said, Could not he who opened the eyes of the blind man also have kept this man from dying? And this is God's holy word. When the author C.S. Lewis wrote in a frank way about his own loss of his wife, They were married only a few years, a short time. Lewis described the devastating grief that he felt as being like having a leg amputated. And he said, you know, by means of crutches or an artificial limb, I'm sure that I might learn to walk again without a right foot but I know that I never again would be a two-legged person as I was before. Always I would be conscious of coping with that missing limb, which for him, of course, was his wife, a missing loved one. Surveys show pretty universally that in the general population of any country at a given moment, one person in ten 
is dealing in some way with a fairly major bit of grief in their life. A spouse, a parent, maybe a child, a sibling, a good friend, someone who has departed and who your morning may be very fresh. I heard after this sermon in the early service of a woman who was here as a first-time visitor and came with a very bad wound of grief on her. And her friend told me she wept all the way through the sermon but knew that God was ministering to her. I don't know what this might mean for you. You might be one of those one in ten people, but of course, chances are 90% you're not. So if right now in your life the idea of an amputated limb being like severe grief doesn't strike you as pertinent or personal, my word to you is just wait. Your time will certainly come. In the text of John 11, we examine what is really the third episode here in this chapter as John carefully unfolds the raising of Lazarus. The first section two weeks ago was the message coming to Jesus to tell him he was a day or so away, and the message came, the one you love is sick, and you remember he stayed there a while, and you can figure it out that Lazarus was already dead. Jesus wouldn't have reached them in time, and unless he spoke a word of command from afar, which he certainly could have done, he chose not to do that. He chose to come when his friend was already four days in the tomb. And then last time we saw in this second paragraph that he arrived and spoke with Martha, who reproached him, you might say, although I don't read it as a strong reproach when she said, if you had been here, he wouldn't have died. She was stating a fact. She was saying, Lord, you're powerful. I know you can ask God for things, and probably this wouldn't have happened. And so now comes the other sister, Mary, who had remained in the house with the guests, and she eagerly comes out when she gets the message that the Lord is here. And by the way, notice about Mary, she is always in the same posture in relation to Jesus. Verse 32, what did she do? She fell at his feet. That's where we always find Mary, always learning, always adoring, always knowing that Christ had something to teach her. And there isn't a lot of conversation between them, and she didn't get the great word that Martha had, I am the resurrection and the life. But Jesus said, in answer to her weeping, show me where he was. And so we witness this rather moving scene that I think deals directly with the response of God through Christ to human grief, how we might confront it and know that our Lord is with us in it and that he's sovereign over it. Isaiah 53 verse 3 prophesied correctly that Jesus would be, quote, a man of sorrows well acquainted with grief. Now, that can apply just to his own awful experiences, the cross, everything that led up to it, the rejection, the criticism, everything that was heaped upon him, a lot of sorrow even before he died. He was acquainted with grief. But he was more than just one who suffered in rather extreme ways. 
If we believe the gospel, we believe that he was the ultimate remover of grief. He came to lift it away, to effectually do something about it. And he was qualified to do that by his sacrificial death for sin, to conquer death through his resurrection. And yet he proves that he cares for us in suffering like no other person could. A southern theologian of the 19th century named Robert Dabney said this, only the God-man, that is Jesus, called him the God-man, is able to sustain us under the wicked blow of grief. For as a mortal man, he felt this blow and he survived it. He returned from death to support us, said Dabney, for he is God. And unless this divine guide be with us in our grief, we will fight our battle against this last enemy called death, alone and unaided. First of all, this morning, my time is shorter and my points will be shorter, but I want to mention a background point, not from the text itself, but let me remind you that many biblical believers have openly grieved. Actor Tom Hanks speaks a famous line in a movie that I enjoy when he said, there's no crying in baseball. Remember that? I think there are Christians who believe that that line is spoken about the Christian life. There's no crying in the Christian life. You're not allowed to grieve. The answer to grief for Christians, according to some people, is stiff upper lip all the way. They think that's the way to fulfill 1 Thessalonians 4.13 that says we're not to grieve as those who have no hope. In other words, wildly wailing and throwing ourselves around and becoming suicidal or deciding life is over, there can be nothing more, and so on. And so people say, well, don't grieve at all. But I don't see that taught in the Scripture. And I don't see it exampled in the Scripture either, in the lives of faithful people. Jacob in Genesis 37 heard a false report from his sons telling him that the favorite son, Joseph, had been killed. It wasn't true, but Jacob believed it was true. And the Scripture says he mourned many days. Job lost his children and his fortune and his entire means of livelihood and his home. And as a man of mature faith, even praiseworthy faith, he was inconsolable. And it takes a whole book for Job to work out his terrible grief. In a book called Lamentations, there's a book that's named for grief. Lamentations. It's Jeremiah is the main speaker. Weeping for his defeated nation, saying, is there any sorrow like my sorrow that the Lord has brought on me? In the New Testament, you think, well, okay, those people are Old Testament. Maybe they didn't have their hope clear enough. What about New Testament? All right. Who's the first notable Christian to die in the New Testament? Stephen, the martyr. Acts 8-2. Christians in resurrection hope Remember, that's the big theme of Acts is reporting the resurrection, preaching the resurrection far and near. And Stephen dies, the first martyr, and it says men mourned him as they buried him. 
Now, I could give you many more precedents like this. The people who trusted in God as their Savior, who didn't hold back whole fountains of tears when some mortal loss came to them. Many of you have picked it up in Psychology 101 somewhere along the way. The classic symptoms or phases of grief that people go through that psychology has observed. And they're different, but basically the pattern is first sort of shock, disbelief, then sadness, disabling sadness that may go into depression for a time, then a wave of guilt, sometimes to people's great surprise, anger, even anger at the person who has died. That's a hard one to comprehend. And then slowly you begin to emerge into more acceptance and into healing. Now, how long you stay in one of those phases or what goes on exactly is a variable from one person to the next. But I do not find it written anywhere that those phases of emotional experience in grief are only for non-believers, non-Christians. Christians go through grief. And I know people who are grieving because they're grieving. They think, this isn't supposed to be happening to me. I'm a, I'm a believer in Christ. Why do I feel weighed down by this heavy thing? You know why? You're human. That's why. 300 years ago, a very wise Puritan author, John Flavel, said, it is much more becoming for a Christian to open up his troubles, tell them, in other words, than to sullenly try to smother them. Flavel said, griefs are eased through groans and heart pressures are relieved by open utterance. Grief is relieved through groans. Groans are okay. Don't believe the person who says there's no crying in Christianity. What is grief after all but a, a wound inflicted really by love, right? Why, why do we grieve for somebody? Because we love them. We cherish their presence and their personality and, and, and just being with them. And the pain of their death comes because we love them. And so grief is the natural funeral rite of authentic love. The only way to avoid it is never love anybody. I don't think that you would see that as a desirable thing. Biblical believers openly grieve. Old Testament and New. Secondly, we go directly into the text here, and especially verses 33 to 35. And I want you to see, secondly, Jesus Christ deeply sharing human grief here. He observed Mary and the other people weeping, and it says he was deeply moved in his spirit and greatly troubled. And then out comes two words, Jesus wept a subject, and a predicate. It's a sentence. It's the shortest verse in the Bible. Most children know that because they beg their Sunday school teacher to please assign that as the memory verse, and they'll have it down before they leave the classroom. But the verse is certainly not a joke. It's something very profound. The true humanity of Christ is on display here. The same Jesus who got tired the same Jesus who could sleep in the, in the bow of a boat on a choppy sea because he'd been busy all day long. The same Jesus who cooked fish for his disciples on a beach. The human 
Jesus, whom Hebrews 4 says was tempted at every point as we are and yet without sin. In order to be a divine Savior, he also had to be a man. And here's one of the places where he shows us that he was a true man. I said a moment ago, the shortest verse in the Bible is, Jesus wept. I always remember something that went on at my high school. I don't know if they, I hope they don't do this today, but you know how the yearbook picks out most likely to succeed, most beautiful, most athletic talent, and, you know, the seniors have a list of those who who are named by their fellows, I guess, for this. And I always remember one, or, or actually two matching selections that I one of them I objected to. I wasn't named in it, but I still objected to it. The one I objected to was the person in the class who talked the least, I'm sorry, talked the most and said the least. I knew the, the girl who got that pretty well, and it wasn't kind. But on the other hand, there was someone who talked the least and said the most. That was an honor, to be a person of few words and and much wisdom. Well, wouldn't you say that verse 35 here qualifies for that honor? The least words, but saying a huge amount. Here we see in this groaning and weeping of Christ something more than mere sympathy. The language, if you delve into the lexicons of the language over this groaning and and reaction of Jesus, There's a note of anger in his groaning, of outrage in a sense. Outrage not towards Mary or towards Lazarus or towards the people who were weeping, but towards death, capital D, death. Outraged Jesus. The very fact that human beings made in God's beautiful image had to suffer this, experience this, and in a moment we're going to find out, and I mentioned last the other week uh, when the tomb was going to be open, they said, oh, don't do that. It, it's going to smell terrible. The very fact that someone loved by these people now smelled terrible was an outrage. And here was Jesus representing the heart of God, angry that death should have done this to God's wonderful creation. Death wounds Jesus as much as it wounds us. And his dismay, his angry tears didn't apply just because this was a best friend. It applied because this was a human being made to reflect the Lord God. But how do you reflect the Lord God when you're four days dead and your body doesn't smell good anymore? Now, there's a third point that I would put on top of the second, and I would admit to you that I'm going beyond the text this time, but I know I can do this with the groundwork of the New Testament supporting me because not only can we say, here's Jesus with us in our sadness, sympathetic with us, sharing our human grief, we have to say something more. And to capture the whole reaction of God to the death of a human being, we take it a step further and say this, the love of God in Christ transforms human grief. That's more than sympathy, a lot more. You see, the people who observed there, these, these mourners who came along, and they were probably some of the same critics who had given Jesus a hard time. At first, it, it's like they concede in verse uh, 
36, well, gee, he's not such a bad guy after all, because look how much he loved Lazarus. But, but then some of them, still critical, say, well, if he's a miracle worker and he can open the eyes of a blind man, why couldn't he have stopped this thing so it hadn't happened in the first place? You see, they were saying it's not enough for you just to sympathize. We want you to do something to change it. Well, that's what I'm saying. The Bible teaches us that the love of God in Christ actually transforms grief into something completely different. You need to know, and, and, you know, it's why they teach preachers Greek, I guess, not so we can impress you, but so we can look up the dictionaries that have these things in that this word for Jesus groaning describes a a strange thing. They they say the best image to describe it is the snorting and the neighing of a war horse ready to go into battle. Is that a vivid image or what? You know, picture some Roman captain on his stallion ready to lead his battalion into battle and this great war horse that's probably been in battle before rears up and snorts and and gives a wild-eyed look as it's ready to charge against the enemy. That animal gut reaction is what was going on with Jesus. A readiness for war and a recognition of the enemy and a readiness to charge into battle against the greatest foe of all. You see, if Jesus was only a sympathizer, if he only came as another mourner and, and did the best mourning of anybody there, and you know in the Middle East you can see it today when, when you, you see on the news, you know, people wailing in exaggerated ways. And I think they did some of that even back, they even had professional mourners. You know, if you thought your funeral party was going to be small, you wanted to hire a few people to kind of increase the volume a little bit. Well, Jesus wasn't one of those that just made the wailing louder or sympathized deeply. He came to do something about it. He was a Savior who came to effectually do battle and win an epic victory in his cross and resurrection. 1 John says that. 1 John 4, 9, the love of God was made manifest that God sent his one and only Son into the world so that we might live through him, and in this is love. Not that we loved God, but that he loved us and sent his Son to be the propitiation for our sin. You see, Jesus doesn't just weep tears of sympathy. He sheds blood that is effectual in defeating death through the cross. He transforms our grief into the sure hope of eternal life. One of my favorite Old Testament guys, he was was a rogue. You know, he was anything but a perfect man, but he's Samson. I always like to read about Samson. And uh, you remember one of the more obscure scenes of Samson when the Philistines wanted to get him, and they had him in their city, and the city gates were locked up, and they thought, ah, good, He's in the city. As soon as dawn comes, we'll be out in the streets and he'll be going to the gate to leave and we'll just catch him then and we'll have him. Well, you know what Samson did, if you remember. Samson got up in the night and he knew all about what they were intending to do and with his mighty supernatural strength, kids, he was the first superhero, but he was real. 
He took hold of the gates of the city and uprooted them and carried them off, not just a few yards, but if you read, I don't remember the the biblical distance, but it was a goodly distance. He carried the gates off and dumped them, basically saying, here, here's your security system. It won't hold me. Well, isn't that what Jesus did at the cross? He picked up the gates of death that imprisoned people for eternity and carried them off and dumped them so that the way is clear for those who follow after him in a sincere trust to go right out through the gate. He's the grief eradicator. He's the sorrow remover. Yes, sobs and sighs and maybe even depression and confusion are going to come to Christian believers who grieve. It's natural, folks. But the gates aren't there anymore. And so the groaning and the tears of Jesus, all they did that day were convince these skeptics in Bethany that he loved his friend. But don't the tears and the pains and the streaming blood of Jesus on the cross of Calvary do something for you, convincing you that here's an effective answer, particularly when he rose then the third day and really carried the gates off, that here's the one who changes our grief. And it's not that there's no crying in Christianity. It's that crying doesn't last in the presence of Christ. We should change as we apply it to ourselves, the last phrase of this text, not that it's wrong or anything, but when they say, behold how he loved him, meaning Lazarus, we should change it to say, behold how he loved us and gave himself for us. And I put before you today a little word in Psalm 56, verse 8, an obscure verse and a As a matter of fact, I'll have to warn you, it depends on what translation you have, whether you get the same thing I'm going to say. There's some oddness about the Hebrew, apparently. But David wrote, and in many of the translations, Psalm 56, 8 says, O Lord, you keep account of all my wanderings or sufferings. You put my tears in your bottle. Are they not all recorded in your book? your tears, God's bottle. And Revelation 21 makes a promise that when the concluding time of history comes, when history as we know it is ended and we're in our resurrection bodies in the new heaven and the new earth, what does it say in Revelation 21? God is going to do. He's going to wipe every tear from your eye. Why? Because there is no more death. Jesus, the grief remover, lifted the gate and took it away. And you can be sure in the end that when God wipes away tears, they will stay dry. Thanks be to God. Father, I pray for those that are grieving today. For some who maybe are a year or more, two or three out from losing a spouse, losing someone very close, others who are very close to it, like the lady visiting in our midst this morning.
Will you come alongside and don't just weep with us, but remind us day in and day out that you have defeated this enemy and the victory belongs to you and therefore to us as we trust you. Help us, Lord, for we go through this life crying and grieving. We need you. Help us that our grief would not overtake us and that joy would come to us in the morning. For Jesus' sake, amen.